Hi, everyone. Today is February 22nd, 2018. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neuroscience podcast. I'm your host, Selma Karashi. Um, our guest today is Ed Stern. Hi, Ed. Hello, Selma. He directs the Neuronal Circuitry and Neurodegenerative Disease Laboratory at the Leslie and Susan Gonda Multidisciplinary Brain Research Center at Bar Ilan University in Israel. Um, his lab works on neuronal circuit and network level information processing in the mammalian cortex and basal ganglia, specifically the changes in neuronal structure, function, and circuitry that occur in, in many neurodegenerative diseases. I think today we'll probably mostly be framed around Alzheimer's disease, but, but you work on many different I work things. on a number of diseases. Um, so around the room we have Alfonso Apicella. Hello. And Charlie Wilson. Hi. And I'm your host again, Selma. So... We've had many folks at our table to discuss Alzheimer's cytopathology and mouse models of disease, but I think you might be the first we've had here to talk about information processing properties of neurons and networks in progression of the disease, which is so cool. Um, so it's weird because Alzheimer's seems to manifest clinically as such a, like just a catastrophic loss of information in the CNS and a, like this decline into entropy. Um, and that seems like really fertile ground for understanding so many aspects of the disease, early states, and possibly treatment. I don't know. I mean, you can tell me what you think. But, but can you just say something first about how you're, how you're leveraging all the disconnects and you know, the huge body of work that exists that basically has very little to do with electrical states? And there's so many camps and that you know, there isn't sort of one... There is a dominant, I guess, hypothesis, but there are multiple hypotheses. So how are you kind of managing this? Well, I would actually say that, you know, for a long time, the amyloid hypothesis dominated the field, but that's much less so today. Uh, But the reason that I'm probably the first person to really talk about electrophysiology of these diseases is because I'm really almost the only person who works on this. There are, as we all know, there are many people who work on Alzheimer's disease, and like a, a real lot, a lot of people who work on it, and they, most of them come from uh, certain backgrounds. There's a lot of neurologists and a lot of molecular biologists and geneticists. But neuroph- this so this is, was going to be my first question to you: Why do you think that is? But I didn't. I mean, since you went there, I wasn't going to put it in quite in those terms. Why? Why is that? Why is there? I, I am not. Sh- I I'm not sure because this really seemed like a real obvious place for me to take the questions that I'm interested in, and apply them. Uh, I have to say that in a way. Well. So the thing that got me into the disease business, I was doing work in cortex and basal ganglia, and that was my first interest, information process in the neocortex and the neostriatum. And uh, I got, and I found that this is, there's a, that's a huge parameter space. And it occurred to me to understand what's really important in that information processing. We could look and see what happens when it goes wrong. What components of that is missing? And Mother Nature uh, has provided us with some examples of that. And one of those examples really fits a basal ganglia perspective, and that's Huntington's disease, which affects 
the projection neurons in the cortex and the striatum, and it was the first animal model of uh, a, tra a transgenic animal model of the disease because we had the gene. It's all one gene, or so we thought. At the time. I mean, it is all one gene, but it turns out to be to have bigger, ram wider ramifications than that. And so you can get this animal model, and that's ripe for people working on the disease. There is this organization called the Hereditary Disease Foundation that encourages people to start doing that. And I thought, huh, yeah, this is for me. And I started working on it on Huntington's disease. And from there, Alzheimer's disease seemed like a natural next step. And I still work on both, by the way. Um, yeah, so it really, I didn't come into it from the Alzheimer's disease thing. I came into it actually from from the Huntington's disease, which for me has really always been a, the model for the disease for a disease research community. So one of the, uh, there are some other neurophysiologists working on some of these diseases, and most of them take the position of, I will use neurophysiology to understand how the disease is killing neurons. So they're looking at neurons in various stages of dying, maybe, or looking for ion channel opathies that could be making them die, or something like that. And your approach is a little different, I think, because you're saying, well, the symptoms of the disease are being caused by neurons that are still alive. So I'm studying the not the death of neurons, but the the bad activity of the neurons that are not dead. Is that well fair? that interests me more, but I still do what you described. So the people there are there's actually not that many people who look and see what's going on to those neurons that's causing those neurons to die. And the reason for that is if you're recording the changes in this these neurons, right? And you're asking them and you see something that's going on there, you don't know if the changes you see are causing this neuron to die or they're the changes that are keeping that neuron alive and something else killed it. So those changes, it's a very, that's a very, and I, I mean, I'm very interested in that, but that's just a really difficult thing to interpret. And of course, many people found that out and quit doing that for exactly that reason. I mean, if you can't interpret the, the answer, it's, it's tough. But yeah, I am more interested in that aspect of things. But, but So, for example, if I do see a change in an ion channel, a channelopathy, and we do see some of those changes, I don't even ask if that's killing this neuron or keeping it alive. I incorporate it into the model to see how it can be, um, for example, uh, Perhaps put into a therapeutic design if I can up, if I can increase that change and make the neuron perhaps behave a little more healthily or decrease it and have it, you know, uh, see which way it works. But that is a question for you, correct? This channel, they are going to stay constant during the disease or they are going to change in specific time of the disease and then it would be very difficult for us to target each of these specific channels. I'm going to change over the time. Everything within a neuron changes over time, including the structure. I mean, you know, people have a, this kind of naive version of the neuron that is the structure is just there, but of course everything has got turnover all the time. And in a disease, and, a, and 
there's a question here. We have two kind of opposite things here if you're talking about keeping the neuron there. On the one hand, you want to keep the neuron the same because that's, you know, uh, stability and reliability. But on the other hand, you want the ability of the neuron to change because otherwise, there's, if a neuron can't change, there's no learning. That's it. There's no plasticity. So you want stability versus plasticity, and you want some sort of an optimum. And it really might be that that optimum is one of the things that's shifting in the disease process. And that's something that's really hard to, to, to measure. And one thing that I hypothesized actually a long time ago, that if you take something like what we like to call neuronal plasticity, structural plasticity, that is a variable that is being reduced in neurodegenerative disease. Meaning the ability of the, so plasticity, the ability of the cell to change is a crucial part of that cell's life. And if it can't do it, eventually it gets, maybe that gets sick and makes the cell die, or maybe it's associated with cell death, but it's something um, necessary for the cell to function correctly. And so the reduction of that plasticity, on the one hand, or maybe too much of an increase in plasticity, is not going to be good for, say, behavior of some kind. This is, of course, a hypothesis. I don't have much evidence of this, but I do know that it, uh, the structural plasticity of the neurons in, in cases of A-beta models is decreasing. Um, and we know from work that we've seen in development, for example, uh, of like dendritic spines and things like that, that there are classes of spines on pyramidal neurons in, in the cortex that are stable, even in the, I'm talking about after the development, not the uh, um, real uh, um, uh, philopodia as opposed to spines, but after things are supposedly fixed in the, say, young adults, animals, you'll see some synapses that are more plastic, and we've done this with um, uh, uh, disuse uh, um, uh, neuroplasticity experiments and things like that. So there's a set of synapses that are plastic and can change, and there's a set that are far more stable, and it kind of looks bimodal in this. And I think that the... Uh, um, so say something about how that's measured. So um, if you would... Uh, like, say, reduce sensory input in a sensory cortex, ultrasensory input, you can measure plas structural plasticity, say. So if you've got the whisker inputs, okay, in the primary somatosensory cortex, you can trim the whiskers in a checkerboard pattern. So every other whisker gets trimmed. And you can see synaptic inputs, uh, then, of course, the inputs to those columns will be lost, and you can the the columns that still receive inputs will grow in territory. And this has been known in development for some time. This is kind of a classic. So you're well, you're talking about structural plasticity, but you're measuring it in some kind of functional way. Yes, but it's also been you measured. You have to but infer it's all, that it's but the, no, but the, in some cases the structure has also been measured, and in some cases it's even been seen in things like multi-photon microscopy. 
Svoboda published on this. Because it, would, it seemed to me that what you were talking about has to be seen that way because you're talking about synapse-to-synapse synapse variability, and in these measures of, of receptive fields, you don't... You can't tell what synapse is what, can you? Uh, kind of. In in the barrel cortex, we utilize. We, so we did this in development by, uh, in a more primitive uh, experiment during the critical period of this, by trimming the entire cor- uh, whisker cortex, and we saw axons crossing into uh, other columns that would normally not. Again, be that seen. doesn't sound like a functional measure. That sounds like a. That was correlated with changes in the receptive field structure. The, uh, so the, you do infer the axons crossing from the physiological response. Well, we saw both. We don't know if they're exactly correlated on a one-to-one basis, though, and we do. We did infer that, but both of those things happen, and we like to think that you can infer. I like to think that you can infer function from structure, but. But you're inferring structure from function, which is a little harder. Yes. Maybe, or it's, it's, it's just as easy, but it's not necessarily as accurate. <laughs> um, but so this kind of stuff was done in, and seen kind of on a rather large scale in developing animals during the critical periods. And it turns out if you go out to the adult animals, this was not my work. This is the work of people like Carl Svoboda. He would, uh, you could do this kind of whisker trimming, and you would also see this was only done with structure and not so much with function. You would see this uh, axonal invasions from the non-trimmed to the trimmed areas, and certain even in adults, of course, much more sparsely and much more slowly than in the juveniles. And at the same time that that got published, a different group was showing that there were um, that that didn't happen, that the synapses they were looking at were stable. And, of course, you can reconcile those two results by saying there are t- populations with different degrees of stability, which turns out to still be going on, but I don't know who's still working on that to what, really classify those. What is your opinion? You're talking about the critical period of plasticity, and there is a lots of debate about reopening this critical period. How when we know the mechanism of these can help us to understand also disease? Um, we can manipulate critical periods. So I, wouldn't actu- so I would actually say that there's critical periods for synapses, for synaptic connections. So we showed in development that there's a critical period for the the lab, for the th- in the somatosensory system, there's critical periods for each and every stage. And, of course, they follow temporally from the periphery on in. So from the thalamic to layer to the cells in layer 4, from the layer 4 to layer 3, there's about a two-day difference in the latter two, etc., etc. And we know that this kind of plasticity can be... It's, a critical period just means a greater period of greater sensitivity to disruption of some type. But there is sensitivity to disruption, of course. All that means is some sort of a change in the input. And it could be structural or inactivation or silencing of inputs without change. Now, this is speculation, of course. Um, so, but, and we know this happens in the adult. And we know that there's 
some sort of plasticity. We showed that there's some sort of plasticity in the age disease, Alzheimer's disease model mice. If we can manipulate those windows somehow, if we learn how to manipulate those windows and enhance the sense of the ability to manipulate, we can not only prevent the, the progression of the disease, but we might be able to make it easier to restore the function. If you've lost function and you can increase the plasticity, you can, that increases your ability to put the function back. So I have a question. When you talked about reduced plasticity in the aged mice, so much of that is dependent on timing of signals. So are we really talking about a reduced capacity for plasticity or just that we don't see it because of the just you know the, the variability in the Both. signaling? Both. And we're able to evaluate that. Both. So for example, we showed we talked about um, uh, uh, by reducing or, or changing sensory input during a critical period, we can change the plasticity, etc., etc. And it was thought that once the critical period is over, of course, you can't do that. But but, but I'm talking about in these 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 aged Alzheimer's well, mice. Well, so then uh, Swoboda showed that you can do this in adults, but it's more the the plasticity is more sparse as you get older, and so it's harder to find the plastic synapses. It's slower. We don't really know the time periods over which to look. These were experiments done using in vivo imaging that are hard, and you can't just guess around. They're hard to do. So you have to have some hypothesis of which we had nothing. So since it's more, much more sparse from... It's more sparse in the adult than in the juveniles. It's even sparser as we age. And so it becomes much more difficult to see and more difficult to do. It seemed really subtle. I mean, we're talking about synaptic plasticity, but I thought in dementia the like, cortex is basically disappearing. Eventually, it'll, you know, it's almost all gone. And, the, and in the meantime, the cortex isn't working anymore. So it doesn't seem... It seems to me like the first thought is that it, does the cortex even work? Not is it got too much plasticity or not enough, but does oh, it do anything okay. or is it functioning at all? Uh, so, um, I am first of all talking about at the stages prior to a lot of cell death, of course. So in your experiments, is there any cell death? Um, in, it's all model dependent. So in this case, model means a mouse and model. Mouse yeah. uh, animal model. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. I forgot I'm about just talking. Like oh, yeah. No, no, no. Trump no, no use the word. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> right. No, no. So in different animal models, I have different amounts of cell death. And I specifically, the A-beta models in which I work have no significant amounts of cell death. And the tau models which I used, it was prior to cell death. Specifically so you're looking for at that the things reason. that happened before this. Yes, because after that, I don't think interventions can do very much. Yeah, but after some cells have died, does the cortex still work? To some degree. Some cell, Obviously, there's some sort of a critical decline and then it's a horrible follow-up. But nobody's really looked at this electrophysiology. I mean, so... I guess I'm, what I'm wondering about is, is the cognitive defect in Alzheimer's disease, is it really caused, is it just a negative symptom of the loss of cells? Or is it a, 
it, or is it a dysfunction of the existing cells that's causing them to do unresolved question? What do you think? Uh, both, uh, but it, it's complete. So, for example, we have a way of looking at the overall gross activity, uh, electrical activity, in uh, the human brain. Now we're going to humans, okay? And that's called the EEG. Now the EEG is the total activity of the cortex. So we, something like that has got to be a wonderful diagnostic measure for every disease, for every disease in every brain disease in the world, right? But it's not. It's not. It's not. It's not. If it works for epilepsy, like to localize epilepsy and stuff like that, but it does not work for Alzheimer's disease. Uh, you, eventually. You do see horrendous alterations in the EEG. Okay. Like it goes flat and you see... Flat like would be big, bad. Well, flat is the lo lower stages, but then you kind of get really big slow waves and, and stuff like that. I got slides like that, it's too bad I can't show them, but it's pretty characteristic. But long before that, the neurologist has diagnosed dementia, and a competent neurologist will diagnose Alzheimer's disease. In other words, you only see that those changes in activity long after the cognitive properties have been. So the cognitive dysfunction precedes a lot of cell death. Now, what about synaptic uh, death, right? The whole cell doesn't have to die to mess stuff up. Well, so in the models that we were using, uh, the first day beta model was famous for not having any synapse loss. Okay. There's a, and how do you measure synapse loss? You count synapses, but you're counting other stuff because this stuff was all done in the light microscope. And you can't count synapses in the light microscope. Or I don't believe you can. And um, so we didn't like that. So this wonderful collaborator who kind of walks on water, her name is Tara Spires, and she's a professor now at the University of Edinburgh. She did the following question. She said, I will only look at spine counts really near plaques as a function of distance for plaques. I'll subdivide the cortex and I'll only look. And lo and behold, near plaques, like immediately near plaques, within 10 microns of a plaque, horrendous spine loss. They're stripped. But that's not enough to cause significant spine loss. It's, I mean, it's a, less than 5% of the total synapse loss in the cortex which gets lost in the noise if you're using these methods. So nobody ever saw it. But here, big time, there's spine loss. I'm on that. I did on that. I was part of that study, but that study is Tara's. It was just brilliant idea, brilliant study of hers. And that really changed things, you know. Uh, yeah, there's spine loss. And, and of course, and it, that turns out, there's, there's synapse loss. Um, and it, one thing you might say is it's less than 5% of the excitatory synapse loss because these are only excitatory synapses that are being measured. But 5% of synapses is really significant. And again, I, uh, we don't know if that's a specific type of synapse or whatnot, but you can see like a picture of an individual neuron that's passing near a plaque and you see... The dendrites got spine, 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 spines, and then when you get near the plaque, it's like dead, like no trees, you know, it's the desert, and then 
after a while, after you get away from the plaque, then all the trees start growing again. And so, but, and so it's, it's extremely cool. And it's so does very, that mean there's no axons to make synapses on the... The axonal density near there is the same. Uh-huh. Looked at that. That part was mine. Thank you. Um, uh, the axonal density near there is the same. So just something in the... Of course, we didn't look at anything more specific than that. Uh, and, and I'd love it if Tara would continue that particular aspect, but I think she's got about 17 million other questions. Does it mean the plaque is releasing some kind of anti-synapse stuff? Well, so one thing that we know now, because we did, uh, so plaques are stained by thioflavin S, which stains beta sheets, but you can do an experiment, well, we did an experiment where you see, where we simultaneously uh, use thioflavin S and a different fluorescent antibody that goes to all A-beta. And you see that every plaque is surrounded by a cloud of soluble A-beta. Now, and the A-beta concentration in the neural pill is not uniform. It's higher near, near plaques. So there's no question that a plaque is neurotoxic. I don't know if that neurotoxicity is because of the soluble A-beta, because I don't even know if that's neurotoxic at all, but something around the plaque is killing the and spines. you see activation of, of microglia. You've done some work with activated microglia, but that was in the tauopathies. That was in the, that was in the tauopathies, and those experiments were so hard to do because microglia... And so if you're trying to track microglia, right, how do you track stuff? Well, you can track its movement, or like in steps, of course, or you can, because you can track its movement because it looks the same, but microglia both move and change their shape. How the hell do you know if you're looking at the same thing all the time? And those were so hard. And I would like to say something, if I may, here. So I didn't know anything about microglia, and I didn't know how to work with them at all. And um, there were some questions that I just couldn't answer. And one thing I wanted to do, so I wanted to call the big expert on microglia, whose name was Ben Barris, who recently died. And he was the chair of neurobiology at Stanford, and he's kind of a tough fellow to get a hold of, you might think. And as soon as he heard that I wanted to talk about science, it was like, drop everything else, and we spent hours, we spent four hours on the telephone. He was answering questions and helping me out. Very, very, um, uh, kind of the way that science ought to work. And so I'd like to just mention that about him. That's a cool story. Tribute, yeah. yeah, so never met the guy. Um, so but does A-beta have this sort of activation of microglia? And what does that do looked. to synapses? We haven't looked. So one of the do problems we, I mean, we had, one of the problems that we had with the microglia is we couldn't get the stuff that we wanted to get to affect microglia into the brain and to look at the microglia. So we had, we had I collaborated with a guy who's a, a nanoscience guy to carry the stuff to the microglia and to attach to the microglia. This nanoparticle stuff is going to be a huge tool for us. We all ought to collaborate with those guys. And they've got like, I use an iron, a ferrous nanoparticle, but they got nanoparticles made out of superglue. Now they carry stuff and then the superglue dissolves. I don't know what that does to the brain, of course. Yeah. but so I the, thought superglue didn't dissolve very easy one time I... That's stuck, stuck on your finger. Table 
Glue the brain. So I, no, there are many kinds. Of, there's lots of recipes yeah. for this stuff. Yeah. So I, I so there, it was really uh, obviously looking at microglia and other types of glial cells is not the main emphasis of my lab. Of course, I find it interesting. And of course, if I found a student who really wanted to work on that aspect, I would. But, but if you just were to take some Aveda and inject it into a, the cortex of a perfectly normal mouse, would you just get this like asynaptic blob? So this, this was something that was proposed, of course, and tried. And I got the kind of Aveda that was... I've tried this with many types of Aveda, including in a collaboration with Dennis Selko, the guy from the amyloid hypothesis. We got the A-beta, which is a terrible thing to try and inject through. I, I you know, because it's kind of the sticky stuff. And um, a really, uh, a goal for a long time was to try and get plaques to develop simultaneously. Like in organotypic cultures and stuff like that, nobody could ever do it. Everybody thought it was simply concentration dependent. We know that that's not true. And only recently has Rudy Tanzi, Mass General, gotten some sort of an in vitro model that develops plaques. I've I've never worked on them. But so one thing you might want to do is inject a beta and see what that does to your recording. Yeah. Kind of an obvious question. So... To do that, you'd, well, the best way to do that is record from a cell, inject the A-beta, and keep recording from the cell. That's really hard to do because the A-beta is really uh, sticky, and injecting it requires a huge amount of pressure, and it will probably blow you out of the cell. Okay. Not probably. Uh, well, probably, but with 100% probability. Uh, and uh, it, it's difficult to do, and the results that we had were uninterpretable, so I don't want to say much about that because I can't. Um, another thing, um, uh, what else, uh, there was something else I needed to say here. Um, so, uh, to just increase the concentrations of soluble A-beta, we've worked with a couple of models that do that. There are some models that just have the soluble and plaques don't accumulate, we're now starting to work on those and take that data ourselves. So the diversity of all these Alzheimer's disease models sounds, uh, when you first hear about it, as a bad thing, right? There's a million of them. They're not all the same as each other. But you turn that somehow into an advantage by comparing... You have to. You're, you're required to do that in the field. If you want to publish on this, the reviewers will ask a very good question. says, how do you know this isn't some epiphenomenon associated with the model? And to do that, you've got to have like a different kind of model to show this. And so most studies will require at least a couple of models. Or, or How many are there and how many different variants on it? Uh, so you can separate tau and A-beta. That's the... That's really a cool thing by itself because in nature they happen together and so you separate them. Not always, but yes. So there are plenty of tauopathies, like frontal temporal dementia is just t- a tauopathy. There's no way beta there, and it's actually different, and they have slightly different uh, sets of symptoms. And a competent neurologist 
or uh, we'll can sort those out with a very with a, over an eighty five percent degree of certainty, and we know this because some of these people volunteer their uh, to donate their brains afterwards and what and whatnot. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, I'm kind of a well. I think that one of the things that differentiates scientists from non scientists it's not that we're smarter than non scientists, except. Sometimes I like to think so, but we're not. One thing that we do know that non-scientists don't know is that we, to understand cause and effect, we're only good at looking at the effects of single variables on other things. It's really, that's the best way to understand things. So if you've got a complicated disease, if you've got a complicated problem, you want to break it up into its components, understand the individual components, and then look at how they combine. So how many different... How many different components are there? So how many different kinds of mice would you, if you could design any any kind of mice that had different aspects of the Alzheimer's disease phenotype? I mean, I'm just trying to get a feel for the dimensionality of the neuropathology. It's, it's pretty low. So let's let's look at A beta. Okay. So you could talk about different time courses. So then you can uh, dissociate the effects on the neuronal firing from the degree of pathology from the aging process, which is an important thing to do. And I've done that, actually. And then you can add things like between neurons where the A beta aggregates in the plaques, and there are some where they don't. That's another important question. And there are some where the A beta causes more inflammation when lessen from inflammation, and a few other things like that. And then there are some things where the actual, and so there are a few specific genes associated with this, which they isolated from specific populations that have heavier amyl, uh, um, uh, uh, like populations with uh, very small uh, pools, like in Sweden, where lots of people are related to each other and everything. And so there's an APP Swedish gene. So they isolated the familial form of, of yeah, amyloid precursor protein. And there's another one in England, APP LUN. And so you might want to look at the differences between those. A significant risk factor is uh, apolipoprotein E, where there are four alleles, and we know that people who have ApoE4 are at much higher risk for Alzheimer's disease. So you can look at the interaction of that. Many people are doing that. Uh, the interaction of that with amyloid beta. And you could, uh, and actually you can get tested for that if you have Apo, Apo4 or 3. And many of the of the what I who I think are the rock stars of the Alzheimer's world, like David Holtzman, who's the chair of neurology at Wash U at St. Louis, is looking at that as a as a variable. And I, of course, I think that's the right, one of the right choices. That's a a pretty good choice for a, a, a super important variable. So say. If you were going to say, if somebody was going to focus their lab only on that that question, the A-beta, and what are the principal components of that, I would say you would need uh, at least three to four different A-beta lines 
and then cross them with a couple of, maybe one cross with April 4, April 4, and then start worrying about the town lines. And we're now starting two new town line investigations and whatnot. Because each of them, they're going to have their own electrical signature. Not necessarily. They might be changed. So I'm only interested in the commonalities between the electrical signatures. The differences there, that's what's model specific. And nobody cares about that. I don't care about that. The, uh, but So, for example, in the tau lines, so some of these are um, virulent and much more, much stronger than in the actual disease model. Many more cells are affected. So if you're just looking for a response, just to see what's there, you'd want to use that. But if you want to see something more, what we call physiological, more realistic in the disease, then you want to go back to a more realistic human tau gene associated, in, injected into that, uh, into that animal, etc., etc. So yeah, the model that I talked about, tau, there is cell death, uh, we recorded before cell death, but now I'm going to a model in which uh, there's no detectable cell death that I can think of to see. So uh, the commonality that you've seen, one of, the, one of them anyway, is a change in the timing of synaptic inputs that are normally clustered together to make upstates. Now they get spread. They get spread out so that the cell has failed upstates in between. I guess those are synaptic inputs that came at the wrong time. They didn't come at the same time as all the others. That's other. what I'm assuming, yes. That's and then the cells don't stay as stable in the upstate, but I suppose that means that, cell, that inputs are dropping out at the wrong time. That's what we think. And so, that, and then in the, in, when you give a stimulus, a sensory stimulus, you see a, also a spread in the latency of responses, abnormally broad spread in the latency of responses. Well, yes. But, so that abnormally broad spread in the latency is not, cannot be due to, for example, increased conduction time in the axons. And we measured that. What it is due is to the fact that ordinarily you would have at the same time enough inputs to get it to go into the upstate at the same time. But now since they're spread out more, you might not have that as quickly, so it's the failure. See, so the input is the the sensory input is uh, has a disadvantage because the network it's coming into isn't as uh, excitable or isn't as synchronizable yes. or something like that. Yes. So the basic problem is in the intrinsic connectivity in the cortex and not in the apparent connectivity of the cortex. I would say that's true. Uh, but I've never really understood what was organizing the cortical activity into these uh, periods of high and low excitation to begin with. I don't think that we have the answer to that. We do know that this is an intrinsic cortical uh, uh, thing, and you need like a critical mass for this. And this experiment was done. I suggested it, but it was done which makes him get all the credit, which he should have, by a guy named Igor Timofeyev. And I, we were talking about what causes this upstate stuff. And I said, so here's how you do like that experiment. You take like a, a, a cylinder punch, and you punch a cylinder in 
the cortex. The blood supply of the cortex is still coming in from below, so the cortex, that piece of the cortex will stay alive. And you can record from the cells in the cortex and see if it's still got up and down states. And you vary the width of that cylinder in different experiments. And you see the critical width. And then, of course, if you want, you can count the cells in there to see how wide you have to how much cortex you need for an up and down state. I don't remember the result, but it was a cool experiment. I wish I'd have done it, but I didn't think of it. With, with, with the telepathy, it's such a mystery, though, because you said that not... I mean, it's the only perturbation in these mouse models that you're using, but and only 5% of the cells show ten. changes in... 10 in this model. Or 10. But yet all the cells show this... Well, the so they all, the, so only five, only in these models, only 10% of the cells get tangled, but they all have the hyperphosphorylated tau. Uh, so that's the culprit. That's, that's what we think is the culprit. I don't know. It also might be some sort of activity thing. So I, I don't know the answer to that. Charlie's pointing his watch, so I have to cut us off. Okay. (laughs) Till next time. Till next time. Thank you, Ed Stern, for joining us. Thank you. This is a wonderful visit. This is a great place to visit. Yeah, everyone should come. I think uh, think so, too. Thanks for joining us. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Mm -hmm.